places. Dear God. You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Saturday, December 11th. I'm Tandy Lau. We're a few weeks away from Christmas, and it's that time of year to get into the holiday spirit. While we're still unclear about the North Pole's COVID-19 policy, here in New York City, little ones are visiting Macy's Santa Land Village, both virtually and in person, for the first time since the pandemic started. Yeah, for them to actually meet somebody. I don't know. So much stuff is on computers these days. They're both vaccinated, so I was like, let's go see Santa. Esports has elevated the video game industry to unique heights. Brooklyn, a recently opened esports facility, is bringing that experience to the arcade business by giving a glimpse of what it's like being a competitive gamer through popular franchises like Super Smash Brothers. Represents the esports capital of the East. It's uh, it's where anybody and everyone can come to to show the rest of the world what esports is about. You know, sports had their run. It's time for the esports. <laughs> All this and more coming up on Uptown Radio. From NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir says at least 70 people are dead in what he calls the state's most devastating tornado event. As Liam Niemeyer of member station WKMS reports, Bashir warns the death toll is likely to climb. Bashir says a historic tornado which stayed on the ground for more than 200 miles through western Kentucky devastated the small city of Mayfield. He says a Mayfield candle factory had about 110 people inside when it collapsed from the tornado. Very hard, um, really tough, and we're praying for each and every one of those families. The Kentucky National Guard and water trucks are being sent to the community. Bashir says 19 counties in the state are expected to have damage. For NPR News, I'm Liam Niemeyer in Paducah, Kentucky. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with G7 counterparts in Liverpool, England this weekend to show unity amid concern that Russia is planning to invade Ukraine. At the same time, Russia is demanding NATO rescind a commitment to Ukraine and neighboring Georgia that they would one day become members of the alliance. Charles Maines reports from Moscow. The demands were spelled out by the Russian Foreign Ministry, providing details to security guarantees President Vladimir Putin has said he wants from the U.S. and its allies. In addition to its insistence, NATO renege on past offers of membership to Georgia and Ukraine. Moscow wants the alliance to rule out the deployment of weapons along Russia's borders, which it says could provoke a large-scale conflict in Europe. 
Putin initially raised the concerns during the two-hour video conference with President Biden this week. As the leaders sought to tamp down rising tensions over Ukraine, Biden has said he's willing to discuss Russian concerns, but the U.S. and NATO have ruled out giving Moscow a direct veto on Ukraine's future within the alliance. Charles Maine's NPR News, Moscow. The White House is again pushing congressional Democrats to advance President Biden's $1.75 trillion social and climate change proposal. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says passing the president's spending package is imperative as rising inflation continues to take a toll on working class families. Because what Build Back Better will do is it will start cutting costs early next year, including for childcare costs, cutting them in half in 2022, making preschool free for many families starting in 2022. While top economists have praised the benefits of the spending package, congressional Republicans and some moderate Democrats argue the bill would increase the deficit and could further stoke inflation. The measure needs all 50 Democratic votes in the Senate to pass. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is WNYC in New York. I'm David. From Uptown Radio in New York, I'm Simone Johnson. Attorney General Letitia James has announced she's withdrawing from the race for New York State Governor. In a tweet, she says that she intends to serve another term as the state's attorney general. She says that she wants to continue a number of important investigations. In October, James had announced she would challenge Governor Kathy Hochul for the Democratic nomination after the sexual harassment allegations against former Governor Andrew Cuomo caused him to resign. Columbia University says it is offering striking graduate students a new proposal after a protest Wednesday tried to shut the university down. Students are asking for better pay and health care, plus arbitration for harassment and discrimination complaints. Johanna King's Slutsky, a PhD student and instructor at Columbia, had this to say about the strike. I myself will not be cowed by the administration's threat. It's completely illegal, as well as being unjust. We're engaging in legally protected activity, fighting for a living wage, a fair contract, basic protections against sexual harassment. So I know that I'm going to continue to withhold my labor, and uh, I think everybody I've spoken to plans to continue as well. The proposal would extend health benefits to the families of doctoral candidates, would add dental insurance, and increases compensation by over $2,000. The university says the package is one of the most generous in the country. The union representing the students will vote on the proposal December 23rd. Christmas is around the corner, and SantaCon is back in full swing today. The annual pub crawl where people stroll around the city dressed as St. Nick or his elves is back after a year's hiatus hiatus when the boozy event was canceled due to COVID-19. This year, the MTA is banning alcohol from all Metro North and Long Island Railroad trains and stations during SantaCon. The ban will end tomorrow at noon. Today, it's 58 degrees and cloudy with an expected high of 65 degrees. The lowest will be 45 degrees. This is Simone Johnson, Uptown Radio. Non-citizen New Yorkers can now vote in local elections starting in 2023, thanks to a bill passed by the city this Thursday. While they still can't cast ballots for presidential candidates, non-citizens will be able to participate in mayoral and city council races. 
I sat down with Lenny Benson, an immigrant law, immigration law professor at New York Law School and founder of the Safe Passage Project, which recruits and trains young attorneys to represent unaccompanied migrant minors to talk about the implications of this bill. This isn't the first time that New York City has floated a lot like this. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I didn't look up the exact years, but um, around 2012, I was the chair of the City Bar Immigration and Nationality Committee, and we hosted a symposium on this proposed legislation or legislation that was very similar. And the main proponent at the time was Councilmember Drum, who was from Queens, and we had him speak and a, a few academics. And we had an open forum about the history of citizenship and non-citizenship voting. And I remember one of the very powerful things that Councilman Drum said is that because he represents Queens, he thinks that fewer than one in five people in his city council district were able to actually go to the polls. And some of them were longtime residents of the city, but because of the cost and barriers to full naturalization and acquiring federal citizenship, it was just unrealistic for these hardworking, relatively low-income, lawful residents of the city to be able to secure full citizenship. Thank you so much for that answer. I, I'm interested in the fact that you brought up the idea of like naturalization. Among the like eight, yeah, like around 800,000 people that potentially can vote if this uh, bill is passed, uh, 30,000 30, of them, I believe, are going to be DACA recipients, right? So those are people that have extensive barriers in terms of nationalization. Can you tell me a little bit about why it's important for people, for dreamers to uh, participate in politics and in electoral politics specifically? So I'm gonna broaden out my answer to go beyond the dreamers because this legislation says anyone with work authorization. So let's quickly talk about who might have work authorization. There are millions throughout the United States and hundreds of thousands of temporary workers in the United States. So they're on H-1B visas, they may be a J-1 scholar, they may be someone who's seeking asylum and they've received work authorization pending that application. And also people with temporary protected status, like some people from Haiti, or in the past, uh, we've had people from Burma or Venezuela, et cetera. They can't return to their country due to a decision by Congress and they're given work authorization. In addition, we have this cohort very well known amongst us of children brought to the United States under the age of 16 who have qualified for a protected status that we call Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA. So the expanded group of who has work authorization is much larger than just those people. And when you now turn to, well, why be able to vote? Well, the city council adopts our city budget. The city council sets priorities. How will we operate our police force? How will we manage our libraries? How do we expand our health and hospital services to make sure we're providing good health care? Our city and the mayor runs our education system. All of these people who are living in the city of New York for the requisite 30 days and who have work authorization are paying taxes. Whether they're paying taxes as independent contractors and artists, or they're paying taxes for running a business in New York because we have a specific tax. We have a resident tax for people in New York, right? And even if you're undocumented, you can file your taxes. So the truth is what the bill leaves out are the people who are undocumented and don't have work authorization who are still contributing. It does, it is not as, as widely written as it could have been. 
it is actually, I think, a compromise to say for those people who are authorized by the federal government to live and work in our community, they should be able to help hold political officials accountable. So uh, in closing, I want to just ask one last thing. Say somebody is uh, eligible to vote under this new law. Just really quickly, can you give them a really quick pitch on why they should be participating? Why should anyone participate in voting? Well, first of all, um, sometimes when you take the time to get ready to choose a candidate, you learn about things in your community you didn't even know were really there. Like you learn about the structure of city government. You might have thought, for example, that it doesn't matter if you vote for the mayor because the mayor is too remote from your life. But when you learn that the mayor's um, commissioners control how the sanitation is managed or environmental laws are enforced or your school system is run, you suddenly see that things that affect your everyday life are most impacted, not by the president of the United States, not by your member of Congress, not by your state representative, although all those people are important in their participation in our government. The, the actual areas of law and policy and budgetary allocation that most impact New Yorkers life are the decisions made by the government of the city of New York. Santa Claus is coming to town. The iconic Macy's Santa Land Village is returning after a year's hiatus, bringing thousands of opportunities to meet Santa at malls and parties across the country. COVID-19 turned every industry on its head, and Uptown Radio's Kate Henchy explains how the pandemic changed the business of being Santa Claus. Would you like to go see the real Santa? Yes. That was Paul White and his daughter Lou. Lou hasn't seen Santa since before the pandemic, a time her parents helped her remember by explaining it was before masks. She was only in pre-K then, but is pretty sure about who she met that day. Well, I think it was the real Santa because he just like gave me a gift. Like, yeah. just that, that sounds like the real Santa, yeah. I think you may have met the real Santa. Lots of traditions were thrown off their rhythm last year, and in-person meetings with Santa Claus weren't alone in being put on hold during the pandemic. This included Macy's Santa Land, which was canceled for the first time in its 160-year history. But now, it's back. Santa. We're going to see Santa, yes. At Macy's? Yes. Right now? In like 15 minutes. That was Anna Baldessari of Manhattan, on her way into Macy's Santa Land with her daughter and a friend. The famous North Pole meet and greet is mostly the same as it was pre-pandemic, with elves and decorations and photo ops. The only reminder is that life has changed since the last time people lined up to meet Santa at the historic department store are the required masks and reservations, which book out five days in advance. I mean, I just got up early one day and went online and there was a reservation. I mean, everything is hard to get these days, right? So <laughs> it was no harder than anything else. In-person Santa has returned, but Macy's and other retailers aren't abandoning the pandemic adaptations made to their holiday traditions. A virtual visit to Santa Land is still an option in 2021. Santa! <laughs> First, you get to choose where in the North Pole we should be. 
The online experience is designed to mimic the real-life Santa Land and culminates in a quasi-photo op that stitches you into a picture with Santa over a virtual background. Even so, some parents, like Baldessari, want to get back to the in-person encounter now that vaccines are widely available for kids and adults. Yeah, for them to actually meet somebody, I don't know, so much stuff is on computers these days. They're both vaccinated, so I was like, let's go see Santa. <laughs> Those in the business of being Santa Claus, however, are keen on virtual season's greetings. So, so I'm doing entirely virtual visits this year and last. 2020, I did about over 560. That was Ed Taylor, known in the business as Santa Ed. He's worked as a Santa Claus portrayal artist for nearly 20 years and runs the Worldwide Santa Claus Network, a consortium of thousands of clauses that offers resources year-round for its members. The network's biggest draw is its classes. More traditional Santa skills, I guess. We have, well, one is just how do you get a good photo? It was also through the Worldwide Santa Claus Network that Santa Ed led the charge in going remote last year. It wasn't all sugar plums getting that older crowd comfortable with Zoom. Came this this labor of love, but definitely a labor. I mean, it was um, a lot of older guys that are not real tech savvy um, kind of jumped in and said, okay, you know, how, how do we make this happen? And we're kind of on a mission to say, well, how are we going to bring Santa Claus to people when we can't do what we've always done? And of course, the answer became technology, became Zoom and, and the other video platforms. As much as pivoting to virtual visits wasn't easy, like other remote workers, Santa Ed sees no need to go back to the old ways. Before the pandemic, he spent the peak season in LA to land the big gigs. Now, he's a grandfather of two, and virtual visits make it possible to keep doing the work he loves without compromising on family time. I know that in Los Angeles, many times, like, I was on the Jimmy Kimmel show and the James Corden show and all these kinds of things in December. The, uh, you know, the, the beauty of the virtual visits for me is I, I, I do, you know, my kids, the grandkids are right out the door here. I mean, they're, they're in the living room right the second. We're going to go do stuff in, in, in right when we wrap up this call. The longer quality time with individual kids is also a plus. I, I feel like I have the same connection and in many ways, even even deeper because you're sitting there talking to these, these children many times um, for, for 10, 12 minutes where, where you, you establish a deeper rapport and, and these virtual experiences allow more of that. Santa Ed isn't the only one sticking with virtual in the post-pandemic Christmas landscape. Services like Jingle Ring, Kringle Mingle, and HireSanta.com are leaning into online meetings as a business model. Then again, Santa Land reservations are still a hot commodity. It seems like there's no wrong way to be in the business of being Santa Claus these days. Before we get back to the news, one last word from Lou. So if this were to go on the radio and you wanted to shout out to some of your friends and classmates, do you have anything you want to say to them? Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Kate Hinchy, Uptown Radio. Air hockey, skee-ball, and cranes have always been staples for arcades to go out and game with friends. But now, 
Brooklyn and esports facility is bringing people together around a new generation of games. Uptown Radio's Robinson Perez has a story. Brooklyn, located in Bushwick, opened in June of this year. The name comes from a combination of Brooklyn and what's known as a land room, which stands for Local Area Network. Co-owner Alec Polsey says he got started by running video game clubs in high school, and it grew from there. I got introduced to, to a handful of guys who kind of had a similar vision to you know, kind of build a, a home for you know, esports and, and gaming in Brooklyn. Um, yeah, the rest is history. Esports, short for electronic sports, are video games played competitively between gamers. Event manager Tucker Davis says Brooklyn gives visitors the opportunity to start an esports career. Represents the esports capital of the East. It's uh, it's where anybody and everyone can come to to show the rest of the world what esports is about. You know, sports had their run. It's time for the esports. <laughs> Brooklyn holds charity and competitive events every week through games like Super Smash Brothers. Zane Charles Chandler recently won a Smash tournament. It was one of his first tournaments after coming out of quarantine from the pandemic. So well, yeah, that was one of my favorite things. I was like, yo, I won a, I won a tournament. Let's go. <laughs> Brooklyn has a wide variety of games and systems such as PC, PlayStation 5, and NBA Jam. They also have a stage to play in front of a crowd, a streaming room, and a private area to train. Amin Radawi has been coming to Brooklyn every weekend and appreciates that each time he walks in, there's always different games being played on the screens. I think, look at him. This guy's playing Dragon Ball. That's cool. And I don't, I don't see these. You know, that's it's always a different game on that screen. It's not like the same people come in here. It's always different people. They were playing Need for Speed. Some people come in here and they're playing FIFA, and I love it. In today's world of video games, people can simply stay home and chat with friends through a voice chat. But Chandler felt it was better to play in person. It's way different from playing like just to a screen. Like a screen to screen, the, I feel like it's a little less personal. When you have someone like right next to you and you're really playing with them, you also get to know them a little bit. And you know, sometimes people become friends just from like sitting down and playing the game long enough together. And I feel like that's pretty cool. Lane Nooney, a video game historian at New York University, says arcades and gaming spaces are making a comeback after a couple decades of decline. Arcade games were where you went to see the cutting edge of games, right? That function that they play dies off over the course of the 1980s and into the 1990s. We have seen a sort of nostalgic renaissance for the arcade as a space in recent years. Nooney says that Brooklyn's recent opening shows that America has been lagging behind other countries in creating a culture and community place for gamers. I think these kinds of spaces are much more common, uh, particularly in Asia. The interlacing of like gaming and internet culture is is what gaming has been in South Korea, right? It's a it's a big part of gaming in Japan and in, in China and other places. The revival of these spaces in the U.S. is helping draw new people into gaming. Back at Brooklyn, Zane Charles Chandler, the guy who won the Smash tournament, recalls multiple occasions where tournaments caught the eye of bystanders. I've seen like just you know normal people just walk in and be like, "Oh, I don't play games. This is cool. This is hype. You guys are having a tournament, and like it just brings people in." And Alec Polsey, the Brooklyn co-owner, is hoping that some of these newcomers will become a part of the gaming community. I think you know we want to help. Let people get involved as much as they want, whether it's from like showcasting, whether it's from the production angle, um, the competitive angle as well. You know, being able to give people experience online is is great. As in-person gaming and esports continue to grow, 
Posey hopes that Brooklyn will be a leader not just in New York, but all across the East Coast. Robertson Perez, Columbia Radio. You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Saturday, December 11th. I'm Tandy Lau. New York City Housing Authority residents are already living in rough conditions. Now they worry that private management will lead to displacements, higher rents, and less tenant autonomy in NYCHA buildings. And just take a look at the roof area is dilapidated. There's a lady that lives on the 20th floor. Her apartment is inundated. Open streets. Spaces blocked off for residents to roam safely during the pandemic are succeeding in multiple communities. In others, however, lack of funding is stopping them from reaching their true potential. So there were people, you know, dropping off who could not manage the open streets anymore because they just did not have the support. All this and more on Uptown Radio. From Uptown Radio in New York, I'm Simone Johnson. Starting Monday, New Yorkers must wear masks to enter all indoor public spaces in the state that don't require proof of full vaccination of all customers and staff. Governor Kathy Hochul announced the mandate yesterday. It applies to all spaces that aren't private homes. Establishments that don't comply will face a fine of up to $1,000 per incident. WNYC says that COVID cases are up to about 7,000 a day, the most since January. The rule will be revised on January 15th if the number of COVID cases and the rate of hospitalizations have fallen. Tomskin Square Middle School students staged a walkout December 10th. Here's David Marquez with the story. About 100 mostly young women walked out of class yesterday at Tompkins Square Middle School. That's according to the Daily News. They say now that they're back in person, they've been experiencing unwanted touching and catcalling, and school officials haven't been doing much to stop it. Students say they no longer feel safe in school. Activists say it's a citywide problem, with students facing more challenges post-pandemic. An education department spokesman told the Daily News that harassment of any kind has no place in our schools. Three squatters were arrested Friday inside an empty, multi-million-dollar Manhattan townhouse. The Upper East Side home had been closed for about 10 years. The townhouse is owned by Richard Stark, the co-founder of luxury retail brand Chrome Hearts. The jewelry and clothing company is known to be beloved by celebrities like Jay-Z and Bella Hadid. The four-story building had been put on the market for $14 million in 2013. So far, there have been no charges filed. It's still 59 degrees and a bit cloudy. There is a wind advisory in effect. This is Simone Johnson, Uptown Radio. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm your host, Tandy Lau. Local housing proponents fear that the private privatization of public New York City housing advocate buildings will lead to the displacement of over 400,000 residents. They are already living in bad conditions. Uptown Radio's Trisha Crimmins spoke to NYCHA tenants who say that they're between a rock and a hard place. Russell Taylor is a native New Yorker and longtime NYCHA resident. He grew up in NYCHA's Carver houses on the east side and now lives on the west side's 830 Amsterdam, which is in between 100th and 101st streets. And just take a look at the roof area, it's dilapidated. There's a lady that lives on the 20th floor. Her apartment is inundated, <laughs> you know, water goes right through that concrete and she has mold on her, all around her apartment, every, every, every room. 
Taylor says that 830 Amsterdam is in pretty bad shape and that NYCHA hasn't prioritized bringing its buildings up to federal standards of living. But recently NYCHA decided instead of to spend money in our apartments mitigating lead, mold and pest, they decided to bring, uh, get a private consultant to put new doors on here, but no one uses these doors. Because the doors that Taylor is talking about are on the 20th floor of the building, they're not used by residents. NYCHA knows residents are unhappy. So a year ago, it proposed an initiative called the Blueprint for Change to bring private companies in to manage and repair its buildings. Here's NYCHA CEO Gregory Russ talking about it in a November 2020 NYCHA YouTube video. This is a set of ideas designed to invest billions of dollars of capital back into the apartments and fix many of the issues that have confronted residents for years and years. Taylor's building, 830 Amsterdam, would be renovated according to the standards set by the Blueprint for Change if NYCHA's initiative goes according to plan. Private companies may mean infrastructure repairs, but residents say they also mean higher rents, less wheel room to pay rent on time, and possible relocation during renovations. NYCHA declined a request for comment, instead pointing Uptown Radio to an FAQ sheet. It states that repairs will address lead, mold, leaks, and pests, in addition to providing new kitchens and bathrooms for residents and other building renovations, like heating systems. Professor Nicholas Bloom of Hunter College's Urban Policy and Planning Department says he expects some of these repairs will be cosmetic. Which, by the way, is not nothing. <laughs> like, you know, new landscaping and paint and new tiles and lobbies and, you know, new everything, in some cases, like in apartments, you know, fixed up. He explains that the reason that repairs are so expensive for public housing is because its infrastructure is supposed to last a long time. So repairs from private companies may not be sufficient. So, you know, short term, excellent. Longer term, we'll just have to see. Getting repairs that withstand the test of time requires a large investment of public funds, but that funding just isn't available. So the federal government isn't putting up that capital funding and even worse, has basically shortchanged NYCHA, even according to its own formulas for, this we're in the third decade of at least, third, fourth decade of underfunding of the, basically the, the annual support. NYCHA has been adamant that bringing private companies in to manage public buildings isn't a privatization, but Taylor says, yes, it is. Privatization is bad because the residents of public housing are not being given the chance for autonomy, for autonomy and determine our own future. So if they don't like the idea of the private repair of their buildings, what do residents think NYCHA should do? Taylor thinks there should be greater tenant control. Wendy Lorenzetti Olivo, a former community organizer from WE Act for Environmental Justice, agrees. Why not give the residents power over deciding how to run the developments? Nobody knows NYCHA better than the residents. Nobody knows the needs of NYCHA better than the residents. Currently, there are tenant boards and associations which work as liaisons between residents and NYCHA. But Olivo said both are tough jobs. These uh, TA presidents have to comply with NYCHA. They don't want to piss them off. 
but they also have to be there for their residents. And so when the residents are looking at them, they're looking at them like, well, you're not working with us, you're working with NYCHA. When NYCHA looks at them, they're like, you're working with the residents, you're not working with us. But Taylor is running to be one of those liaisons. He wants to be the president of 830 Amsterdam's tenant board. That this building deserves strong leadership here, and that's why I'm running in these elections. I believe that I'm not going to say, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel or say that I'm a visionary, but I do have visions of what our development grounds can be. He says he'll work with community-based organizations to train NYCHA residents on how to repair their own units. Trisha Crimmins, Uptown Radio. You may have walked around your neighborhood this summer or last and seen something new, a street closed off by barricades where cars previously whizzed by. These so-called open streets were a way for the city to get people to enjoy outside safely during the pandemic. Many have remained, but because of funding, some are flourishing more than others. Uptown Radio's Lynn Tala reports. Avenue B is one of the open streets on the Lower East Side. It runs from 8th Street to 14th Street. I figure I'll show you kind of what it's like to walk a very shared street. That's Sophie Merowitz. She lives on the corner of this open street. She's also the co-founder of the Loisida Open Street Community Coalition. Just a group of residents who all felt like the sidewalks are too narrow, like there's too many cars and too much traffic in this part of the city and that people need more room to walk and breathe and run and bike. As Sophie and I walked down Avenue B, we ran into Jeff. Oh, hey, Jeff. This is our awesome Cleanup Corps member, Jeff. We now have city staff managing the open streets. NYC Cleanup Corps is part of the city's federal recovery program and helps open streets with maintenance. Jeff lives in Times Square, but has been a Cleanup Corps member of Avenue B since June. I spent the 80s through early 2000s working and living in this neighborhood, so it's good to be back. At Avenue B, the funding they've received from places like the Horticultural Society has really helped with managing volunteer shifts more efficiently, allowing them to use fewer volunteers to take down and set up barricades so that they can spend more time programming. Really just taking the, the neighborhood's talents and skills and lifetime work and, and making the street a place for the community to come together and share that. Using city streets for community programs, Transportation Alternatives has been pushing for this creative use of city infrastructure for over 50 years. Corey Epstein, the communications director of the organization, says that the Open Streets program started on an unfortunate foot, with the mayor picking very small locations for the Open Streets. When COVID began, Transportation Alternatives worked with a lot of different community groups uh, to really push the city to think differently about our streets. Even with full understanding that this program was being rolled out in the middle of a pandemic, Epstein says that the few open streets that were active weren't really serving the way that they were supposed to. They were basically guarded by dozens of NYPD officers. Yeah. Uh, and we, of course, pushed back and said, no, 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 this program needs to be much bigger. This program needs to be equitable. This program needs to be community driven. Transportation Alternatives and the newly formed Open Streets Coalitions were able to push the mayor and city council to put this program forward and got the Blasio to promise 100 miles of open streets. The program after the you know very early months did start to grow and blossom mm -hmm. into a very positive program across the city. Mm -hmm. However, we never met that 100 mile goal. Even though the city hasn't met the 100 mile goal yet, Avenue B is an example of a blossoming open street. 
Whether it was putting on interactive performances for kids or simply having more room for jogging, residents of the Lower East Side were taking advantage. But in some communities, support for more open space is there, but the lack of proper funding can create difficulties. In the South Bronx, the Jennings Street Open Street provides families with a safe space. Yolanda Hardy is the director of the Caldwell Enrichment Program in the Bronx and runs the Jennings Street Open Street. Everyone calls her Lonnie. I've had parents say to me, I know where my child is. This is that's a consistent every other day or so. Miss Lonnie, thank you. I know where my child is. In October, Transportation Alternatives released a report with some dire news. 84% of the open streets in the Bronx were closed this past summer, and only 2% of all active open streets were located in the Bronx. Corey Epstein. It just uh, goes back to the fact that this was a volunteer, this was a volunteer uh, approach. So there were people, you know, dropping off who could not manage the open streets anymore because they just did not have the support. For Hardy in the Bronx, getting consistent support for the Jennings Open Street has proved to be a challenge. She had applied for funding from the city for August to October, but her application was rejected. She asked why, but was never given an answer. Normally, lower-income communities get very little. It's just ironic that people always say, well, we need to help these communities, but then when you raise your hand and say, hey, this is what I need, no one listens. Because open streets largely rely on volunteers and community organizers, there are inequities, mostly because some neighborhoods have people rich in free time, and some don't. There are communities who are more connected to politicians than not. Poorer communities tend not to be because they read work. And I can, I can relate to that. Another point of inequity, fundraising. The richer, wider community of Park Slope has raised over $30,000 for the Fifth Avenue Open Street. Neighborhoods with more people of color, like Jennings Street, haven't been able to raise cash in the same way. So what can the city do to make things easier for communities to operate open streets? I think that the Transportation Authority, as soon as someone says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run this program, there should have been a, an overview of what they sh were supposed to check off. Over at Avenue B, the open street has extended into the fall. But in the Bronx, Jennings Street is closed. It's cold, of course, but also because they just don't have the volunteers or the funding. But Hardy knows what she'd do if she could raise the money. We can have salsa dancing. We could have hip-hop dancing. We could have uh, more sports activities. We can have, um, and now it's environmental justice. This past spring, Mayor de Blasio announced $4 million in funding for community support for open streets for fiscal year 2022. Transportation Alternatives is pushing for the city to provide more funding for lower income communities and to make the open streets more permanent. Lynn Tala, Columbia Radio News. That will do it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our executive producer is Trisha Crimmins. Our senior producer was Alma Beauvais, and Robinson Perez was our senior editor. Lynn Tala was a studio director and led our production crew. Kate Hinchy ran soundbites, and David Marquez operated the board. Simone Johnson was our newscaster, and lastly, our instructors, Jennifer Venasco and Alyssa, uh, Lisa Escarce, served as our consultants for the show. I'm your host, Tandy Lau. Check us out online at uptownradio.org or at soundcloud.com slash uptownradio. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening, and happy holidays.